once taken the Lord's Supper together. Uh, And some of you, as I have, have been longing to do that and wondering why have we not taken the Lord's Supper as a church yet. And I think it's a good desire, it's a right desire to have that craving for the supper. And so today, with God's help, we're beginning a four-part sermon series on the Lord's Supper. What does it mean? Why do Christians observe the Lord's Supper? In preparation for taking the supper together for the first time. Today we're going to be looking at the purpose of and the promises in the Lord's Supper. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the presence of Christ in the Supper and what does that mean. And then following that, we'll be looking at participating in and protecting the Supper. And then finally, something I think is often overlooked in taking the Supper, we'll be looking at preparing for the Lord's Supper. How do we prepare to take the Supper? My prayer is that this series will help us to understand not only the significance of the Supper, uh, but it's also really going to help us look forward with joy to celebrating it. And as a Reformed and Presbyterian church, we really are helped to understand what do we believe in this tradition? How do we understand the Lord's Supper from what the Bible teaches? The Supper, along with baptism, along with the Word of God and prayer, are wonderful means of grace that God has given to us to help grow us in the Christian life. And so let's look now at what the Bible teaches about the purpose of and the promises in the Lord's Supper. So looking with me first, Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Take of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then our sermon text for this afternoon, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, we all have ways of remembering important events or important people in our lives. And oftentimes we remember things by having maybe a keepsake or a piece of memorabilia Perhaps that someone has given us or just something we've taken to ourselves. Maybe it's a photo on your home screen of your phone of a beloved friend or family member. Maybe it's a piece of jewelry that you have. Uh, Maybe it's a seashell you collected at the ocean. Uh, Whatever it is, it's tying some memory to an event or a person who means or means something very significant to you. 
For me, one of the pieces that I have to remember something significant is in our apartment, some of you have seen this, there's a big Chinese scroll that hangs above our TV screen. And it's a scroll, it's the text of, from Isaiah chapter 56. Now for many people who look at that, they see that as, it doesn't really mean anything to them, but to me it's very significant. That text from Isaiah 56 was assigned to me as I was studying to be an ordained minister. I had to write uh, one of my sermons based on that text and deliver it and was examined on it. And so for me, when I see that scroll and I see that text, I don't just remember the words of scripture as important as that is, but I also think of the people who poured into me to train me for ministry. I think of the church that confirmed that internal call that I had, the church that sent me here to preach the gospel. I think of also the people that are praying for me even now. So I don't just remember even past events. I also remember how those past events inform and shape me and have effect even today. And that's the way that often things that remember triggered a memory are meant to work. We see them, we remember past events, but are also triggered to see how they have effect today. Well, friends, God knows that you and I are weak in faith. And so in his mercy and kindness, he has given us tokens, as it were, to remember him and the gospel and the promises that he's made. Promises not just in the past, but have significance in your life today and will always have going forward in the Christian life. And one of the promises that is symbolized, or one of the tools, I should say, that God does that to remember his promises is the Lord's Supper. This is the sacraments, both the Lord's Supper and baptism. God has given you, given us, the church, audiovisual aids, as it were, in the Lord's Supper. Things that we can see, taste, touch, and feel, even smell, to help us remember the gospel and the promises that God has made to us. And so it's important for us to stop and really meditate on what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper and what God is promising to us why he's given us this meal to remember him and his promises. And so this afternoon, with God's help, I want us to look at six ways, six ways as we look through this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, that God teaches us what this meal is for. And as we do that, we're also going to see some of the promises that he's shown us in the supper. And so the first purpose of the supper that I want us to see, uh, it's pretty evident as we look at both of these passages, actually, the first thing about the supper that we need to see is that it's a command. It's a command. Maybe that seems a bit obvious to you at first, but it still bears pointing out. Notice what Jesus says twice here in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. It's a command. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, another command, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he gives essentially the same kind of command in the three gospel accounts. We read one from Matthew. Jesus is saying, Take, eat. It's a command. Drink of it, all of you. These are Jesus' commands to celebrate the supper. So, friends, what that means is that This supper that we're preparing to take, it's not optional in the Christian life. God has commanded you, commanded us to observe it as Christians. It's not something really that you can take or leave. 
It's not even for just a higher class of Christians like priests or people who have only studied to be in ministry. No, these are things that God has given to all Christians to observe. But notice, too, that it's Christ who commands this. It's not some earthly human authority that's given us the Lord's Supper. Supper wasn't created by the Apostle Paul. It wasn't created by any other New Testament writer. It wasn't even invented by the early church. It definitely was not invented by the Roman Catholic Church or the Pope. Uh, It's instituted by Christ himself. And so, friends, Jesus assumes if you are a Christian, if you take his name, you're his disciple, then you'll obey his commands. And one of his commands is to take the supper. We'll see in just a moment more about what it means to partake of the supper. But let me just say a few things about what Jesus is not commanding here in the supper. There's a lot of confusion, I think, or a lot of questions. And you're going to have questions, I imagine, about how we're going to take the supper here. So I want to anticipate just a couple of those. What is Jesus not commanding here? Well, this is not a command to expressly copy every single detail of what Jesus and his disciples did that night he instituted the supper. Okay, we're to observe the essence of the supper and what it means. So that means we don't have to copy all of the circumstances surrounding the details of that night, right? So what Jesus is not commanding is, he's not commanding that we need to take the supper in the second floor of a building, just because they did, right? Uh, Jesus is not commanding we only take the supper with 12 people because there were only 12 people there taking the meal. He's not only not commanding that, he's also not commanding that we take it only with men because there were only men there that night, right? These are all circumstances of the meal. They're incidental to the actual meaning. It's also not an explicit command even to use unleavened bread in the supper. And Jesus says, after supper, The text says, after the Passover supper, they took the bread. And that bread, the word used there in Greek, refers usually to just ordinary, common bread served at a table, which was usually leavened, not unleavened bread. Whether Jesus took unleavened or leavened is somewhat irrelevant because the point is, don't miss the point of what Jesus is doing. The point is, Jesus takes what is extremely common, what is ordinary, what is in front of us, what is a staple, and he attaches his glory and promises to that. That's the significance. Not whether the bread has leaven or not, but that God attaches his promises to something very ordinary. And so we, if we celebrate the supper, you know, it's perfectly fine to use unleavened bread. It's also fine to use leavened bread. The point is to use something ordinary, common, a staple food, and we can approximate and get as close as we can. It's also the case with wine. There's big divisions in the church sometimes. You use grape juice or wine or both. Well, the point is, I think you use the fruit of the vine to symbolize Jesus' blood. Uh, whether it's alcohol or not, um, of course, we can approximate and get close to using alcoholic wine, which they probably had. But again, the point is to symbolize Jesus' blood that he spilled out for us. So, we're not going to be taking the Lord's Supper with M&Ms and Coke. Okay, it's obviously very far from what Jesus intended. Uh, we're not going to be taking the Lord's Supper with popcorn and green tea. I know some of us are very disappointed by this. 
We are going to take it with bread and some kind of fruit of the vine. So Jesus does not give explicit commands for some things. And one final thing, maybe, uh, yeah, one final thing here. He also does not give an explicit command for how often. It does say often, as often as you do this. So how often is often? There's debates about that. It could be some churches do it once a month. Some churches do it quarterly. Some churches do it weekly. There's no explicit command. Um, I do think, and we'll get more into this as we go through this sermon series, more often is better. If Jesus is commanding us to observe a meal, it's for our good as Christians. It's good to do it often, more frequently than not. After all, as we're struggling Christians, we need God's means of grace. Why would we not desire to partake more often of it than not? So I'll have more to say about that when we get to uh, probably the third sermon in this series. But I want us to start getting to think about the benefits of taking the supper often because it is a divine aid which Jesus has commanded us to celebrate often. So this is the first thing. The Lord's Supper is a command. Now, what, is, what does it mean that the supper is a means of grace for the? Let's look further at what the Bible says here because the supper is also a remembrance. It's a remembrance. Look again at verses 24 and 25 here in 1 Corinthians 11. Jesus says, doesn't he? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not just saying, remember me like a personal friend or a relative. You have a personal connection. You know, that's all that remembrance means. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Don't think of him as just some long-lost relative that you haven't seen in a while. Jesus is calling on us to eat the supper similar to how he and his disciples had just eaten the Passover meal. When they eat that meal, it's a meal of remembrance of what God had done to save them out of Egypt, right? It wasn't just remembering God, it was remembering the entire event of Exodus, how they were in slavery, how they were free. God sent the plagues, he delivered them through the Red Sea, all the way into the wilderness. Into the wilderness, he was feeding them manna from heaven. He was teaching them to trust him. He was testing them all the way until they get to the promised land. The entire event helped them make sense of their lives then. In the same way, when Jesus institutes the supper, and he says, do this in remembrance of me, He's saying, remember the event of my entire life I've just lived out in front of you. And it has continuing significance in your life today. Jesus has given us a meal to remember him by, to remember his, especially his sacrifice and his death of one salvation for us. Again, not just in the past, but it has continuing effects today. Friends, isn't it true? That so many things in your life, it's not just about you being informed, but about you being reminded. Right? You don't, you don't need to inform your boss that you need to get paid. You need to remind your boss. You don't need to inform your child that he or she needs to feed the pet. Uh, you need to remind him or her. I don't need to inform you to drink water to stay alive. I need to remind you. 
or for husbands and wives. You don't need to be informed that you're married, but you do need to be reminded that you're married. Husbands and wives, we have rings on our fingers to help us do that, right? It's not just to, to, to show me, oh, I have a nice piece of jewelry or something. No. It reminds me that I'm attached to someone. It reminds me that I, years ago, made promises to that person. It reminds me to forsake all others. And not just to, to think on those things, but to act on them to grow closer and closer to my wife. Friends, how much more so in the Christian life do we not only need to be informed, we actually need to be reminded. Reminded that we are united to Christ. He's made promises to you. Some of those you know, but every single week, at least, we need to come here and be reminded of them, assured of them. Because we're so weak, right? We forget these things throughout our week throughout our daily lives. We need God to come and say, once again, I have promised, I've made a covenant promise to you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will lead you through the wilderness of life. I will feed you with manna from heaven. I will deliver you and bring you into the promised land to dwell with me. That's the reminder that Jesus is calling us to think on when we come and eat the supper. Friends, when we eat the supper, when we eat this meal, Christ is giving us this remembrance of his suffering and redemptive work and the promises that come along with it. We need to keep Christ in front of our eyes continually, reminded of his sacrifice, to keep the memory of that. Remembrance, according to Jesus and the Bible, makes a link between God's past miraculous acts with his continued grace and mercy in our lives in the present and the expectation he'll continue to be faithful to his promises as long as we live. Purpose of the Supper is to continually bring us back to that by showcasing, as it were, Christ's death and suffering for us. So the Supper is a remembrance. But that leads us to a third thing, actually quite naturally, as we think about the purposes of the Supper, it's also a confirmation. It's a confirmation Notice uh, Jesus says here, in verse 24 especially, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Let's highlight those two words, for you. Because the supper is not merely a reminder, we also actually receive God's grace. It's an assurance that we receive God's grace in the supper, confirming our faith. Friends, isn't it true on this side of heaven as a Christian, you're still a sinner, I'm still a sinner. Even if we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, we continue to fight sin every single day. And isn't it true, if you're a Christian, you hate to fight sin in the sense that you hate that there's still sin living inside of you. As much as you struggle and wrestle against it every single day and you pray, God, please take this sin away from me. We know every single day we mess up, don't we? And we come to services each week, many of us burdened by that, wondering, can God really cleanse me of my sin? Is he really going to assure me that I'm his child? You know, I've messed up on this one sin so many times. Is he going to forgive me one more time? But friends, the promise of the gospel is yes. 
Yes, God can and does forgive all of those who receive Christ through faith alone in him. Whatever sin you've been struggling with, whatever wickedness you've committed in the past, whatever temptation you're battling, whatever doubts that are nagging at you, the bread and the wine are a reminder and a confirmation that Christ has fully taken on the wrath of God against sin at the cross. So in that sense, the Lord's Supper is a visible gospel. The supper is not just a symbol, someone said. It's a summons. The supper is a call to believe the gospel and be assured that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for me, whatever sins I've been carrying. When you take the supper, the the Lord is confirming to you, declaring to you, sealing to you the promise of the gospel that he, out of his free grace, grants forgiveness of sins and everlasting life to all of those who look on Christ in faith. The Heidelberg Catechism put it like this, participating in the supper by faith means to accept with a believing heart that the entire suffering and death of Christ and by believing to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Friends, that means that when you actually eat the bread and drink the wine by faith, in that moment, God is pouring out his grace into your life. There's an actual bestowal, if you will, of God's grace. That's why we call it a means of grace. Now, the person who only knows the truth of Christ's sacrifice intellectually without clinging to him by faith and receiving his grace, if we know that but don't actually believe it, it's kind of like a person who realizes that food is nourishing to the body but doesn't eat it. Someone who comprehends and grasps by faith Christ's atoning sacrifice knows that Christ nourishes us in faith and when we take it, it's actually feeding on that food, not just knowing that it's nourishing. The body and blood of Christ actually nourish us by God's forgiving grace at the supper. Jesus' words here is that this was accomplished for you. Believe it. The bread shows me that his body was actually nailed to the cross, figuratively broken on the cross. The wine reminds me that his blood was truly spilled at at his death for me. When I see the bread torn, I'm reminded of his body sagging on the cross for me. When I taste the bitterness of the wine, I remember the bitterness of the curse that Christ bore for me. When I see the dark wine, I think of the spear that pierced Jesus' side. So when I touch the bread, when I drink the wine, I chew it, I chew the bread, I swallow to feel on my lips and down my throat. For the Christian, this is you like putting your hand in Jesus' side and feeling the holes in his hands where the nails were. That's as close as you can get to experiencing Christ's death as Thomas did when he was doubting. And that's one of the purposes of the supper is to actually show you so you can taste, touch, feel, and smell that Christ's death was real 
and it was accomplished for you. So it's a confirmation of that, but it's also a participation. That's the fourth thing I want us to see here, a participation. Supper calls us to remember Christ, confirms his sacrifice and graces for me, but it's also symbolizing a participation that we have with Christ himself. Christ calls us to be united to him in the supper. So when we take the bread and we take the wine, we're actually communing with Christ. Makes sense. Makes sense when we remember how Christ instituted the supper with his disciples around him at a table communing with him. The reformers described this as a mystical union between Christ and the believer that takes place at the Lord's Supper. Because we don't simply just gaze at the table, right? At the bread and wine. We don't just look at it to remember, to memorialize Jesus. No, we actually take and eat it because he wants us to commune with him, to fellowship with him. That's what it says. That's what Paul says actually in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the body of Christ? This is where we get the word communion from, koinonia, participation, partaking in, fellowshipping in. When Paul uses that word koinonia, he's thinking of the Old Testament worshipers who would go to the temple with their sacrifice with their meat, they'd offer to God. It was given in sacrifice. A portion was given back to them to eat there at the temple. Why? It was symbolic of the communing with God himself. It was a meal with God, fellowshipping with him. So when Jesus gives his bread and wine, he's saying, in the same way, when you eat this and drink this, you're actually communing with me. There's a mystical union there through faith alone. So friends, you have a participation with Christ in the supper, and it's a necessary communion. Jesus does this because he wants us to grow in faith, and he promises that when you do this meal, when you take this meal, it's actually uniting you more and more to Jesus himself. How many of us have ever said, Lord, help my unbelief? I believe, help my unbelief. Well, one of the ways that he helps your unbelief is through the means of grace like the Lord's Supper to grow you. After all, that's what Jesus says in John 6. We read it earlier. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Just like physical food nourishes, just like the lunch that we had nourishes and sustains the physical body, so too, the spiritual meal of the supper is going to nourish and sustain your soul because you're feeding on Christ himself. Now, the Lord's Supper is gifted to us as a sign of God's communion to us. I imagine that for some of us as Christians, this is not new to you. Some of us come with this understanding to the Lord's Supper. For others, it's perhaps strange or it sounds foreign. Well, next week we're going to be looking more specifically just at this. What does it mean that the Lord's Supper is a participation, a communion with Christ himself, as we'll be thinking about the presence of Christ in the Supper? So I'm going to talk more about that next week, Lord willing. But we need to understand that point, that celebrating the Supper is actually participating in 
the crucified Christ himself. That's what Jesus says. But then fifth, what is the supper? Not only participation, it's also a proclamation. It's a proclamation. It's a reflection of the intimate communion, not only with Christ himself, but also the communion and participation we have among believers. All of us united to Christ, because we're united to him, we're actually united together as a body, aren't we? By taking the supper together, we proclaim, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, and he'll go on to talk about in that chapter, we proclaim, we make a statement about our unity in the gospel as believers. Friends, it's actually significant. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It's very significant that in all three gospel accounts, when Christ institutes the supper, and here in 1 Corinthians 11, significant. They mark, describe, point out that Jesus actually takes bread and he breaks it. You ever notice that? Why does it make that point about breaking bread? What does that have to do with anything? Is it just a practical thing to pass out the bread for a meal? No, it's certainly more than that. The breaking of the bread signifies something. And Paul tells us what it signifies, actually, why it's so important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, he says, Because there is one bread, we who are, men, are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I don't know if you've ever been in a church before. You take the supper, and you see the minister break the bread. The, the reason for doing that is to show you We all come as Christians from that one loaf, from that one body. So you may only get a piece of that bread, but it's meant to show you you're one piece among many. We're all coming from that one loaf. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, I've given you myself, and you're all members of my body. I am the head. And when we take the supper, it's it's as if the reality of that sort of fuses or coalesces us together as one body, a one larger body. When you see broken bread pieces distributed, think of it like little puzzle pieces going out, right? All those puzzle pieces by themselves would be nothing. But when you put them together, it's a much larger picture, right? As you take the supper, your piece of bread, remember that you're united to Christ's body, much larger piece, the whole loaf, And so, friends, when we celebrate the supper, you're going to see the bread broken. And that's a very important thing to do, I believe. As you see that bread broken, remember that we're all sharing in one loaf together. That the Lord's Supper is not just vertical between you and God, it's also horizontal between yourself and other believers. We actually miss the point. We miss half the point of the supper if we're only thinking about our individual needs and not in terms of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, a couple of practical applications here to press this home in your life when you think about the Lord's Supper as we're communing with other believers. That means that the Lord's Supper really is a proclamation of our unity. That means you can't really, you can't celebrate it alone. I don't know if you've ever encountered Christians like this before. They say, I I take the Lord's Supper on my own at home whenever I want. It sounds very pious, but I think from the Bible's point of view, you can't really do that. It's not really the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper, by definition, is something that we do together as Christians. 
It's a sign of our unity, proclaiming the gospel truth that God has united us not only to him, but also to other believers. When we take the supper, you have to do that. You have to do that with other believers then to proclaim that unity. So you can't do it at home by yourself, and you can't do it through an internet church service either, all on your own. You need to be physically present among God's people to truly take the supper and be nourished by it. That's one point of application I want to point out, but let me also say here, answer this question, why we as a body have not taken it yet? You know, we meet in person, so why don't we take the supper yet? My friends, if we understand it truly symbolizes the unity of believers in Christ, it symbolizes too that we're committed to a body of believers. The supper is obviously not for non-believers, for non-Christians, right? Those who are not united to Christ by faith. Well, the supper is also not for those who are not a part of the body of Christ, the church, in any meaningful way. To take the supper, we need a meaningful way to know who is a professing Christian. Someone who's committed themselves to obeying Christ as king. That means we need to know who's a believer before we allow people to take the supper. If you're going to enjoy the koinonia, the communion of Christ and believers, as Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians, you need to be committed to a body, formally. To give permission to this body to speak truth into your life, even hard words, if necessary, when you're in danger. We need some system to know who's accountable to a larger body, uniting themselves to that body. And friends, the biblical system for doing that is church membership. The Bible lays out a system for doing that. To profess, I will submit myself to this body and to the elders and make this church my church. And friends, that's why we've been working our way towards formal church membership here. So that we have a system of knowing who is a professing Christian and that they're accountable to other Christians so that we can be united together as a body to take the Lord's Supper, which is a sign of our unity. All of us coming under Christ's rule as professing Christians. So you see, the Supper, in a sense, is only confirming that. It's confirming that reality. So we're going to get to this more in the third sermon of this series about who can participate in the supper. But if you're not a member of a church, then the sign of the supper, in a way, can't be applied to you because it's not true that you're united in a community of believers. So the point is the supper is really for those who are professing, baptized believers members in good standing of a local church, whether that's here or another church, because the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of our unity as a body of Christ. And then finally, number six, the Lord's Supper is also an anticipation. It's an anticipation. The other aspects, purposes of the Lord's Supper are wonderful purposes of the supper. But we must never lose sight that the Lord's Supper is also an act that anticipates, that hopes for, that looks forward to the return of Christ. We miss that, but it's right here in the text in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. Notice that Paul says, 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming again. And each time we take the meal, we remember that. We think of that. We long for that. We pray for that. Friends, I confess, I've grown up my entire life in the church. From an early age, I've watched people take the supper. I started taking the supper from when I was 18. I took the supper. I have taken it in many different churches, many different contexts. Uh, But this aspect of the supper, I got to say, I remember hearing about very little growing up or for most of the Christian life. The Lord's Supper as an anticipation that Christ is coming again. Friends, prior to completing his earthly ministry, Jesus gave his disciples something to help them. As they see him ascend into the heavens, he gives them a reminder that he is going to come again. He's not going to be physically with them now. He'll be with them through the Holy Spirit, but he gives them something to have hope, something that he is using to enlarge their hearts, as it were, for a greater union with him that will take place in his eternal kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth, preparing to enlarge a room in their hearts for him to be united with him when they see him face to face when he comes again. What does it mean to anticipate the Christ Christ return in the supper? What we're doing is more than just a one-time act. It's a rehearsal for a much greater, much more cosmic meal that's going to take place when Christ comes again. I don't know how it's done in China. I could ask one of you afterwards. Um, If you get engaged to someone, you're planning your wedding. Um, I don't know how it works here. You're going to get ready for that wedding day. You're going to have a big banquet, most cases. Um, In the States, how this happens, we plan our wedding day. You know, you're probably going to have our wedding at the church, especially if you're Christians. And after that church wedding, you're probably going to have a banquet afterwards, a wedding um, supper. And in the States, what you do usually is prior to the actual wedding day, usually the day before or maybe two days before, you invite all the people who are taking part in the wedding ceremony itself. So the bride and the groom, of course, the groomsmen and bridesmaids, anybody else, the minister, and the family members, the immediate family members, right? And what you do a couple days before the wedding is you have, you have a, uh, oh, I just spaced on the word, a, um, a rehearsal dinner. Thank you. You have a rehearsal dinner. And it's just to kind of get you ready for the actual event, right? All the people that are engaged are going to be in the service, but also to get people excited for the actual wedding. There's always nerves before the wedding, right? So get everybody kind of excited, but also prepped and ready um, for the wedding itself. Now, the rehearsal dinner is not the actual wedding. It's a dinner paid for by the father of the bride, much smaller gathering, very joyful feast. It's very celebratory. It's a preparatory feast, but it's not the actual wedding, right? Well, in a much greater way, Christ has given us, in the supper, a celebratory, a preparatory feast in anticipation of the actual wedding banquet that is going to come when Christ comes again. So what we celebrate here at the table on earth, as great as it is, it's only a microcosm of what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. What we do know on earth, Christ has given us to prepare for a much greater thing.
So in that way, when you come to the supper, remember, you're not coming to a sacrifice. You're coming to a feast. You're coming to a table, not an altar. You come celebrating, not mourning. You come with absolute confidence that though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The whole gospel movement is portrayed in the supper. The incarnation of Christ, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his coming kingdom. And Christ has gifted us, the church, with this essential sign. It's a keepsake, if I can say that reverently, a memento to remember his promises and that he's coming again. And that's to grow us in faith, to confirm and assure his promises, to unite us more and more to Christ, to display our unity as believers, and to fill us hope, fill us with hope of what's to come. Friends, that's good news. That's good news. So I look forward in the coming weeks to hearing more good news of what Christ has promised and shown us in the supper. Amen. Let's go to God now and thank him.